sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. How you doing? I've been pretty good. Tanned, rested, and ready here. I've been away for a while, so it's it's good to be back. Yeah, absolutely. I always uh, I always enjoy kind of getting back to our, our original roots and doing the show with you. It's always a lot of fun. Um, before we get to the show, just a couple quick things. As a number of listeners have noted, we've had some, uh, how will I uh, spin this, uh, variable audio quality lately. And uh, it, we've we believe we've worked out all the issues, but I'm going to do more than just give you some kind of a vague promise or anything like that. What I'm going to say is that uh, from this point on, I am actually going to personally check every single piece of audio before it goes out. And if anything is not absolutely up to standards, we're not going to release it. And if that means that I have to do a last minute show about, I, I don't know about what, but that's what it's going to be. I promise that you are not going to hear any substandard audio from this point on, no matter what. So you have my word on it. And so I'd like to think my word is, is we'll see. I guess we'll see if my word's worth, right, Jay? So, so, but anyway, yep, yeah. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, you, you trust me, Jay, right? I mean, there you go. So anyway. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So. But anyway, I just wanted to let you know that we do take this seriously, and it is not going to be an issue in the future, period. All right. Uh, second little uh, thing I wanted to mention is, you know, I'm getting- We can't vouch for content. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we can't vouch for no, content. No, 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 certainly you know, not. It'll, it'll but, sound good. <laughs> uh, but, but at least our, our, our musings should sound good, even if they're not coherent, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, another thing I wanted to mention, Jay, is I am uh, getting ready to teach a class on democracy in America, which I'm creatively calling democracy in America. Um, but, uh, but yeah, right. it, it's kind of, you know, it gets into sort of a lot of the stuff that you and I like to talk about and, and think about just, you know, kind of casually between ourselves, you know, political theory, the founding, the kind of ideals that, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And so because I'm all of that, for democracy in America, Mike. I know you are, you know, me too. We can agree on that. Absolutely. And so because of that, I've been thinking a lot about democracy and doing a lot of research and that sort of thing. And in doing that, there was actually a podcast that I came across that I really like, I think is a great resource. I'm listening to it and I thought other people might want to check it out too. It's a podcast called Democracy Works. And basically what they do is every week they look at uh, a different aspect of what it means to live in a democracy. And they have various you know, conversations, academics, authors, activists, that sort of thing. Uh, one of their recent episodes that's super useful to me, they uh, it was on what uh, Tocqueville would think about democracy in America in 2019, which is pretty cool um and i think i was giving you my first question for you about was is de tocqueville going to be as a part of the uh the conversation yeah, yeah absolutely and so that's why when i saw this podcast episode and i found this podcast I was like wow this is really good stuff and another another thing i really like about them is show notes uh are oftentimes a weak point in a lot of podcasts their show notes are amazing they have like additional links discussion questions interview highlights i mean it's it's pretty it's pretty impressive uh it's uh they it's actually a collaboration between 
between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University and WPSU, which is the, the public radio station there. And it's like a, a weekly thing, a uh, great back catalog of events. So I just wanted to promote a show that I think is really worth listening to. So you can just look for Democracy Works in your podcast app. They also have a website, democracyworkspodcast.com. So I think you should really check them out. Anyway, um, one final thing, Jay, the first batch of mugs and tote bags for Patreon supporters at the $10 or higher per month level, it started to get the people. I don't know if you've seen, but some of our, some of our supporters have been posting pictures of their tote bags and mugs on, on yes. which is really cool. They, I think they came out really well. And so, uh, so yeah, if, uh, uh, everyone should be getting theirs in the first kind of wave that I sent out by early July, and I'll be sending out the second batch uh, probably sometime in the next week or so. So I look forward to, hope you look forward to that. Anyway, all right, with that out of the way, before we do get started, we also have some new Patreon monthly supporters I want to thank. Uh, Sherna, who's a new supporter, and also a thank you to Brian and Lynn, who both increased their previous level support on Patreon. And that really, wow. yeah, it means a lot to us and it really helps keep things going. And of course, when you become a monthly sustaining supporter, you know, you get our thanks, a little shout out here, but also various bonus things like bonus shows and a bunch of other things like, well, you know, mugs and tote bags and things like that. So to check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And you can see all the stuff we have going on there. All right. Well, with that out of the way, I think, Jay, it's uh, time for me to uh, move out of the driver's seat and turn things over to you. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, our first story this week uh, is, of course, going to be the Democratic debates uh, that were held over two days uh, with a cast of thousands. Uh, as you recall, the Democratic uh, National Committee, in order to sort out who would be who would debate and who would not set sort of various thresholds based on fundraising uh support and so forth uh still had to carry this over two nights um you know it's it's hard for me to look as far as who came away a winner or a loser i mean reading the the, the uh the reports the the notices as they say uh kamala harris seems to have have uh, shown up uh well uh, at least you know gotten the name out there people are talking about her uh, likewise, Elizabeth Warren, uh, I think most people believe acquitted herself well, um, less so um, uh, Beta O'Rourke. Uh, and again, I, I, I think we should caution everyone, Mike, that sort of the first snapshots after a debate uh, often aren't, aren't accurate uh, or, or they change over time. It's like you ever, you ever go to see a movie that like you come out of the theater saying, man, that was really great. And then sort of like the next day you're like, eh, you know, it didn't make sense. I think debates are kind of like that. So uh, I think we should always put that caveat in there as far as instant analysis. Um, but, you know, for most of this, I, I think my first thought for you, Mike, because I think we're, the, we're on the same page of this, is um, did the, the Democratic debates, are, are we moving forward with, uh, with democracy? Was this helpful, I guess, for, for voters and or candidates and or the, the, the system, I guess, the way, the way that this was structured? Yeah, well, I, I think we are largely in agreement on debates, at least as as they are uh, constituted currently. I wouldn't even call what, what we saw a debate um, a cattle call, maybe something yeah. like that. I mean, you think about the format, right? One minute to answer questions, 30 seconds of follow ups, 45 second closing statement. Uh, 
it, it's ridiculous. It's not a debate. So the word right. is, the word is completely wrong. It's a it's an opportunity to throw out sound bite, sound bites. Essentially, is, is what it is. I and so, but but I get it. And I mean, the media coverage around it, of course, has been insane because it's exactly the sort of thing that plays to the media's strength. With politics as a battle of you know quips and personalities, and not ideas or policies. But of course, it's ideas and policies that matter in the end to the lives of real Americans. And so I, I find this uh, just a, a spectacle more than anything yeah. else. Although, although I, would, I would interject sort of like quips and sound bites uh, matter often in terms of the electability. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In terms of, of, of is someone getting across and, and can they raise funds? But but no, I, I, I'm sort of on the same page with you there that there's there's not a lot of substance there, especially uh, at this. I mean, when you have a one on one presidential debate, there is there is necessarily more substance, more time to talk and actually get deep into policy uh, issues. Um, but the, the time frame and I, and I should tell people, if you ever had. I experienced this when I ran for office uh, last year, going to candidates' nights, and you would have this format where it was uh, one minute uh, or so, to, you know, to respond. And in reality, that's that's barely enough time to get your name out. Um, and and so that's that's really what most most of the candidates I think were were doing here, just trying to get their name out. Um, so, Mike, I mean, did you come away with with any impressions of of winners, losers? Uh, people who outperformed or underperformed? Well, I mean, I came away with the impression that this is just a, a sad spectacle for, for democracy, essentially. I mean, and I want to I wanna come back to this because that's, that's what I take away from this more than this ridiculous talk of winners and losers and so forth. Uh, I mean, what is it debates these kind of, I'm, not, I'm air quoting it, debates reward? Well, the reward being being quick, being clever, being aggressive, being emotional. And, and what do they punish or, or not reward, at least being deliberative, thoughtful and analytical? Now, I want my president to be deliberative, thoughtful and analytical. And, and those aren't things that are going to come out in this sort of this kind of food fight type of format. I mean, it, it, and if the media and the media just just promotes this that the format promotes this. And, and, you know, you can say, well, what else are you going to do with 20 candidates? Okay, fine. But if you want to promote more kind of a reasoned debate, then you would maybe spread it out with fewer candidates, or you certainly wouldn't have the cheering studio audience type thing. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just insane. So they're, they're designing they don't have the like spectacle. a jumbotron too, kind of, you know, yeah. with a little, well, and not only that, but, and- but you're not allowed to carry notes on stage, which is part of the thing. So we want to, yeah. we want to reward what memory. And so how many of these sound bites can you, can you remember to jump in with? That's, that's, it's, that's junk basically. It, it's, this is just sad. It just, it just makes me depressed, Jay. But, and then the gimmicky, raise your hand if you're for abolishing whatever private insurance. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's stupid too. Because if I were in that position, my feeling would be, well, uh, it depends, you know, I mean, under what conditions, how would it work? How much would it cost? So I, I just find the whole the whole thing just disgusting and an amazing waste of time and just sad. It makes me depressed, Jay. Now, all right. Now, now, but in terms of what tiny little bits of substance maybe I can pull out of this sad spectacle, I will say that it's not exactly a shock that the candidates are mostly playing to the party base. You would expect that. 
Yeah. Right. And most of them, I think, whoever wins, unless it's say Bernie, would come back a little more to the center and maybe Warren, who are kind of there out on the left flank, that sort of thing. In terms of people who raised themselves above or had a good night or bad night, honestly, you know, certainly the pundits have their thoughts and the super politically engaged people, but that doesn't really matter so much as what the polls are going to say and what the future endorsements say and fundraising numbers and that sort of thing. So it's at this point, Jonathan Bernstein is a political scientist who does a great column and, and uh, email newsletter for Bloomberg View, said at this point, it's all theater criticism. And I love that. You know, I think it's per- right. That's why I said yeah. like the notices, exactly. right? Exactly. Okay. So, you know, just uh, it's mostly contentless criticism. But my, my sense of things is sure, there were some people who kind of jumped in there and were able to, you know, look pretty good, like Harris. There were some people who didn't do themselves many favors. Andrew Yang, um, who uh, claimed that his microphone had been cut off, which is why he only talked for, like, I don't know, had some, said something like 450 words I saw based on one. Mr. Chairman, I'm paying for this yeah, yeah, microphone. Yeah, but, you know who said that? I, that that's, yeah, Ronald, <laughs> Ronald Reagan. Absolutely. Yeah. But but, you know, seriously, I thought when, when Andrew Yang said that, I said, well, yeah, that's what I would do. I would turn off everyone's microphone if they weren't being actually addressed. But, of course, that wouldn't that wouldn't lead to the kind of interruptive sort of, uh, you know, fracases that that we get, basically. And then Harris gets the chance to make that line about what's it? Uh, hey, they don't want to see if the Americans don't want to see a food fight. We want to see how we're going to put food on people's tables or something. And I groaned and rolled my eyes, but thought, <laughs> hey, OK, nice, nice shot. But fine. What? Whatever. So, man, how long did you work on that one? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, my, again, I'm I'm with you in that. My preference, I would love to see something, uh, you know, like the old William F. Buckley firing line sort of debates of you know resolved. You know, here's the question: uh, America should have a single payer health care system, and then you know the, the back and forth that that sort of you know debate debate. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm I'm maybe a little more sympathetic uh, than you are to this, just because of the nature of uh you got to do something i i sort of would would fall into that of like there's no good solution here but but that sort of raises another question that that occurred to me like three in the morning last night is and i'm i'm interested your thoughts as a political scientist on this in the last two um uh, presidential elections we've we've seen this on the republican party uh and now the democratic party with this mass of candidates uh, you know, it was all total 17 or 18 uh, Republicans who ran. Uh, and now we're looking at somewhere 20-ish, 25-ish uh, Democrats who, who have declared. Um, and that strikes me as, as different than in years past, right? I mean, before you'd have maybe one or two, or you'd have one person who represents one wing of the party, another who doesn't, like, a, you know, a Reagan-Ford type, type situation, a, a Kennedy-Carter type, or, or, you know, those those sorts of uh, sort of things, or even 88. I mean, I, I, thinking back, it was, I mean, the joke used to be, it was, you know, Dukakis and the, what, seven dwarves mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Um, but still you were, you were in single digits of, of candidates. Um, and I have a theory on, on what's making this different. And I'm wondering if, if you'd given any thoughts to that. Well, I think in part, it's a, it's a sense of, 
when people think an incumbent is particularly vulnerable. And of course, in some races, you don't have an incumbent. And so that makes that makes a difference as well. But I think another part of it is that the sort of the gatekeeper role of the parties has broken down. And there's there are a lot of reasons for that, certainly, but it's a lot easier for somebody to go outside of the party structure and make a name for themselves. And so for, for all of those reasons, you see these, you know, large numbers of candidates. But you know, but I would say that one thing that that could be done certainly is to just say we're not going to have candidate debates with more than say, you know, with more than say five people at a time or something. Yeah. Then the other people will say, "Well, you're shutting out our voices." And you know, my response to that would be, "Hey, raise more money and get more people to support you, and then we'll consider your voice." But, uh, but go get a podcast. You know, you know, there, there you go. I, I'm not. I'm not unsympathetic for people who believe that they have important views, but not everyone, it's not that not everyone, I won't say, you know, it's not that not everyone has a right to be on the stage. Well, I guess it is that everyone, not everyone has a right to be on the stage, actually. I mean, because this isn't about getting in every little nuance of you and making sure every single voice is heard from. This is about, I think it should be about providing something that's of use and substance to the American people. And with this many voices, you simply can't do it. There are other forums for candidates to get their message out. And I understand why all these candidates want that national stage and so forth, but, uh, but it, it hurts the entire process. If, if anyone who has over polling over 1% or whatever it is, gets on the stage and you have you have the travesty that yeah. resulted. I would. Oh, you could get that. Yeah, I, I would say not just not just here <laughs> now, but you know, you saw the same sort of thing with the Republicans in twenty sixteen. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would say I, I think you're you're sort of right on the first one, sort of wrong on the first. Uh, in that, that it's a, a weak incumbent. Because I thought about that too. Is it just everybody wants to run against Trump because they think I got a shot? And okay, yeah, I get that. That could be part of it. I think the second reason that you cited the breakdown of sort of party discipline, and and I would even go make it a little different and say, sort of party dynasties, um, uh, it, it has has changed this. And I I think, um, if you look at the the uh, uh, twenty sixteen election. It was in, in some ways kind of the end of the, the Bush dynasty, right? That it had really kind of, I don't want to say controlled, but certainly was uh, hegemonic, let's put it that way, in the, the Republican Party. Um, and, uh, you know, it started out, the favorite was going to be Jeb Bush. And, and as when as he started collapsing, everyone else sort of just, just raced in to fill that vacuum. And, and I think you might be able to make, you can make the same argument for Democrats this year in that uh, the Clinton dynasty is over. Uh, and and there is this sort of power vacuum, and it's it's you know sure. partly the party and partly candidates who who had an outsized influence in the party. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, with without any other uh, uh, debates uh, uh, discussion, I think we should probably move on to something that is more substantive. Um, and that was it was it was a big week for John Roberts uh, this week. Uh, who is in some ways sort of uh, some say echoing the the Anthony Kennedy uh, sort of it's it's his country you just live in it. <laughs> uh, others see his his uh, decisions as kind of thoughtful uh, long term um, playing the long game. So the the first uh, big uh, Supreme Court decision that came out this week uh, had to do with uh, gerrymandering, uh, partisan gerrymandering. There were three cases that came up from various. Uh, circuits that the court heard together uh, regarding whether uh, partisan makeup of a 
uh, congressional district uh, could be could be subject to judicial review, essentially. Um, Roberts, writing for the court, writing for a, a five-four majority, uh, found and held that uh, the question of gerrymandering was simply not a justiciable question. Rather, it is a political question uh, that the founders entrusted uh, this process. They understood it to be political, and they entrusted it to a, a, a political body, political process. And the judiciary doesn't really have a role uh, in in jumping in here because it's it would be too difficult for the judiciary to come up with a single rule or standard to apply across the board. Now, the dissent um, uh, echoed that, well, yeah, but it's really bad now. <laughs> sort of the gerrymandering is really bad now, particularly because of the technology that we have uh, to to reduce maps to sort of a granular level to figure out where people voting, what their preferences are. Uh, so it's more pernicious. It's more a threat to democracy. Uh, and and notably for a standard, though, throughout sort of it's a kind of we know it when we see it uh, kind of kind of standard. Um, so my my thoughts, obviously, were I, I think the, the court got this right or the majority got this right, um, that uh, the Constitution, there's nothing in the Constitution about uh, the right to have your party represented. Uh, there's certainly um, uh, a right to to avoid voter dilution. Uh, you know, one man, one vote. There's also a, a, a right that's been uh, created uh, through our 14th Amendment and through the Civil Rights and through the Voting Rights Act uh, about uh, being able to not not discriminate by race in in uh, crafting districts. Um, but anyway, Mike, what where what are your thoughts now that we have an actual decision on this? Well, I I don't agree with the majority. But uh and and that shouldn't surprise you in our previous sure. you know conversations about this. Uh but I do respect at least uh, Chief Justice Roberts's reasoning and and actually in a string of decisions what's and we'll talk we'll talk I imagine about the yeah. census decision in a little bit here but what's really one of the bigger points that's come out to me is that even though John Roberts and I are on opposite sides of, of the aisle in terms of, uh, to a certain extent, in terms of constitutional interpretation, in terms of ideology. There's a there's an integrity in and a consistency in his yeah. thinking and in his rulings that I have a tremendous amount of, of respect for. Um, now, in this case, he his argument was essentially that this is a political question because there's no clear and definable standard. And I think that's a reasonable position to take. I disagree with it because I believe that in recent years, the social science research has developed a standard that I believe is clear and workable. And of course, the, the dissenters believe that as well. Uh, but again, I, I, can, I can see where you could be a reasonable person and say, no, this isn't a clear enough standard. I think that's a wrong position, but I, I get it. And I also get the argument that, well, if we don't have a clear standard, then we're just making this up as we go along. I think it's absolutely right. And so, but here's my, I get the, you know, the argument as well that, well, you know, if we look at 2018, five states actually passed laws to make redistricting less partisan, including Ohio, as you know, Jay. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the argument is, is, is well, maybe, maybe part of the reason why Roberts was inclined to go in this direction, because he's the new swing justice and, and it, 
even though he's a little more conservative than Kennedy, he's thankfully a lot less full of himself than Kennedy, which is nice. But anyway, um, that's kind of a, a side point that the problem here, it seems to me, is, you know, there are 24 states that don't have referenda or initiatives. And so they can't do this sort of thing. So while we're seeing we're seeing a certain amount of momentum, even in uh, red states like Ohio and Ohio now is, you know, I would say a red state. Um, there's no recourse, I would say, in almost half of the states. And so I fundamentally agree with that, you know, the, the saying that you hear a lot now that the constituency should choose their representatives and not the representative choosing their constituency. And uh, but I get that this is a tough question. Um, I think but, it was wrongly I would, I would decided. Say the, the people in states, I mean, you, they still uh, elect their representatives, they elect their governors. Um, and I think that's a lot what, what Roberts was saying. He wasn't saying there's there's no room for improvement or, no. or gerrymandering isn't a problem. It's it's that this is not a, a problem for the court. I mean, he was saying essentially it's a, he went as far as to say it was, you know, kind of a threat to democracy, really. But it's just nothing we can do anything about. So I agree right. with him about the threat to democracy thing, but not about the nothing we can do anything about. Now, I kind of well, go ahead. Well, I was going to interrupt. The other, I mean, the other piece that uh, Roberts mentioned, and um, I didn't mention the intro, was was of course public policy concerns. And and I'm always I'm always one of these people who like if you get to the if you're in court and you're arguing the well public policy would dictate um, that's kind of like is kind of a tell that you've got sort of a weak hand. You know what I mean? Um, in this case, it's or or you do what the court sort of did in this case is you tack on the public policy argument. Uh, to the end. Um, but, but I think there is a, a, a public policy case to be made here in that uh, if you look at what happened in, say, Pennsylvania, um, where you essentially had courts redrawing districts and, and you have this, um, you know, because of the way partisan politics operates, you will have multiplicity of lawsuits uh, up to right before filing deadlines, during filing deadlines. Uh, you'll have injunctions, you'll have uh, appeals of injunctions, and, and you really get this sort of, you know, craziness and distrust that then is built into the system. Um, uh, I, I think there's something to that. Well, yeah, well, like, like I said, I, I think, though, that there is a clear standard. It's a workable standard, and the majority erred in not adopting that standard. But but that aside, it's. I also think that there's no question that the process of redistricting has an inherently partisan element. Now, that's, of course, made a lot yeah. worse by modern technology and so forth. But if you, I guess my bigger problem is if you take a look at just in general congressional districts, you know, there's one district in Ohio, and I forget which district it is, but it's this mass. My district. What's that? My district. No, not, no, I'm thinking about like, I, well, yeah, that's one of them. It kind of the snake, snake, on, snake the on the lake. But there's another one that goes from like northeastern Ohio almost all the way down the entire kind of the, the entire kind of eastern edge of this entire state. And Ohio's not, you know, okay. kind of the largest state. Um, yeah. But the, the the fundamental idea that the framers had of these kind of, you know, uh, contiguous, geographically compact sort of district that represent communities of interest, that's gone. That's gone in so many places. And so I think we need to look to different solutions. And so what I've been thinking about a lot lately actually is a way around this is multi-member districts with rank choice voting. I mean, I'm still not totally sold on it and I need to do a little more research and so forth, especially in concerning how it would be implemented. But the, the idea 
basically is among other good things that would happen because of it in theory is that it would make gerrymandering less of an issue, almost take it off of the table in a way, because it would be incredibly difficult to shut the other party out. Just to give you kind of an example, Jay, and again, I'm just kind of early stages on this, but okay, California has 53 congressional districts now, which, wow, it's something. That's a lot. But under, say, a multi-member district plan, that would maybe become 14 districts. 12 of those districts would have four representatives, two would have three representatives, and then the leading four vote-getters would be the people who would win those positions and would represent those districts, basically. And the likelihood here, based on everything I've seen, is that it would not only make it much, much harder to essentially gerrymander a party out of representation, but also it would allow, if you bring in ranked choice voting, it would bring in, uh, make it possible to bring in more minor parties, give them kind of a toehold and bring more of those kind of views in. So to me, that's makes a lot more and sense. That's, and that's a good, that's a good thing because it's a good thing because people who have legitimate interests should have a way to have them represented just and, and shouldn't be just kind of shut out because they can't manage to get a plurality. And it's something right. that's done in all kinds of other systems. In fact, ranked choice voting and uh, multi-member districts are things that have been, that have been done and are being done in plenty of places in the United States. And not only that, but multi-member districts were very common in the United States Congress up until around the 1840s. So this is, this is not any kind of wild radical thing that's in breaking with our, with our democratic traditions here in the United States. So, but again, I'm saying at this point, I'm not totally sold. I need to think a lot Still more about work in this, progress. But, but yeah, more to come on this, certainly. Okay. Um, well, moving on, the, the um, uh, next Supreme Court case uh, dealt with uh, the attempt for the, uh, by the uh, Commerce Department to add a sen- question to the census uh, regarding citizenship. Uh, and again, this is a, a Judge Roberts sort of uh, pivot uh, where where he uh, wrote the opinion for the court, but essentially sided with the, the more liberal wing uh, to the extent we can say this is a decision on the merits. Um, and, and the court ended up rejecting uh, the putting the question on the census as it stands now and, and remanded it to the lower court for uh, basically more fact finding. Um, so my my first thought is is one. I mean, it's not necessary. It is in some ways a decision on the merits, and other ways it's not. Um, uh, and and courts can often you can never go wrong by remanding for more fact finding. I'm just going to say that's sort of a, a fact of life. Yeah, you know, yeah. sort of the ultimate um, uh, kind of punt. Um, uh, no one will ever fault you for that. Uh, I suppose some conservatives have faulted Roberts for this. Um, but but this case turned on. Uh, the, the question of, of sort of deference to to an agency, but also the agency's sincerity and the reasons that they they would give for for whatever change they want to make. Uh, so in this case, uh, the the purported reason uh, for the Commerce Department to add this question uh, to the the census was to to make sure districts are are fair, correct, according to the, the Voting Rights Act. Um, and and on its face, that's not a bad reason, and that's a that's a a good reason. It's a, it's a true reason, um, but the court found that look, that wasn't really their their actual reason. I, I think that gets into a sort of a a a, a difficult 
area uh, for courts determining sort of the sincerity uh, of of uh, bureaucrats who who put these these orders out. That said, um, I, I think I think Roberts is is very much playing the long game. He he sort of sees where he wants to go or he where the court ought to go on these uh, uh, deference questions and uh, administrative law questions, which. Uh, quite honestly, between you know, I think Mike, you and I agree that this is one of the big issues of, of of our time. Um, and and I think he's he's sort of he's charting a course, and and he's kind of bringing people along here and there. Um, but uh, what what are what are your thoughts? So I mean, my, my many conservatives were were disappointed uh, by the decision. I am I am less so. I'm sort of um, uh, again, he's he's picking his battles. Well, I, I, I don't think he's. Picking his battles, I think that he just he just saw the he looked at the facts of the case and he he made the he made the right decision on this because I, I think he's right, right. And let me let me jump in by by picking his battles. That's kind of what I mean. Okay. Is that look, if if you're going to make a you know some big big statement on on um, administrative review or or deference that it's given to uh, an administrative agency, it's it's sort of like. You want to pick the case that has the the right facts to do sure. that. Sure. Yeah, and, and, and I think okay, you yeah. recognize this one doesn't. Yeah. And, well, yeah. and in this sense, in terms of in terms of granting deference, I mean, uh, the problem here was that uh, essentially, while uh, there are two questions, as you pointed out, can a can a citizenship can the Commerce Department add a citizenship question to the census, and if so, was this done? In accordance with the Administrative Procedures Act, basically, which means yeah. that and, and the court the court seems to imply. Uh, I mean, again, that the question wasn't necessarily before it, but it seems to imply that yes, the Commerce uh, Department could a- add such a question. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that that seemed pretty clear to, to me in the majority opinion. But as they point out, this whole after the fact reasoning. I mean, the the point from uh, the opinion. Right. He said that, well, you know, the, the secretary was determined to reinstate the question from the time he entered office. He instructed his staff to make it happen, waited while commerce officials explored whether another agency would request census-based citizenship data, subsequently contacted the attorney general himself to ask if the Department of Justice would make the request, and adopted the Voting Rights Act rationale late in the process. I mean, yeah. they, they totally they totally screwed this up. And I think the decision was right in the sense they said, hey— Come on, this is totally a rationalization and not a legitimate reason. Now you have you have the right to add this question, but if you're going to do that, you need to tell us what your real reason is. And that's what they did. They gave them. That's why they they sent it down to say, hey, we're going to give you a chance to give your real reason. Now the chances are that they're not going to be able to come up with anything, especially by a, there's some differences as to when the deadline is, but by the end of October. And of course, there right. are other challenges also working their way through courts about you know with that uh, data on or that information on um, uh, Thomas Hoffler, uh, the Republican right. redistricting guy. And so, so my guess is how this is going to play out is that the form's going to have to go out without the citizenship question. We'll see, but. It seems to me pretty clearly that the administration screwed up in doing this in a big way. And I think, thankfully, because I don't think a citizenship question should be on the census, and they, they botched this, and I think that's going to be to the detriment of Republicans and to a positive for having an actual accurate count of all the people in the country. And that's, of course, what the census is supposed to do. 
No. Well, I mean, I, I disagree with you on the, on the merits of the, whether the question ought to be there and whether it's a, a accurate count. Uh, I, I would agree with you 100% that this was, uh, it, it was reminiscent of the travel ban uh, cases, right, where uh, the, the Trump administration sort of pushed out this, this rule and then sort of after the fact kind of did the, the fact-finding to support it and got kicked back a couple times and uh, revamped the rule, did new findings, and, you know, finally got it, got it right. Um, so there's the disappointment in that, you know, uh, can't you get this right the first time? Because again, I think there were plenty of good reasons, uh, why a census question, why a citizenship question should be on the, uh, uh, census. And, and moreover, the court recognized, uh, it's okay to have political motives, um, along with, or it's okay to have mixed motives or multiple motives. Uh, but what you have to do is when you, when you put this out, you have to articulate at least one, you know, real uh, uh, reason that you're doing this. And, and you can have as many other reasons as, as you like behind that. Um, and just, just to be clear, your reason can't be to uh, suppress the, uh, the political power of a minority group. That's not a constitutionally um, okay reason under the 14th Amendment's Equal right, Protection right. Clause. Now you you right, paused. But, I mean, you have you have issues yeah. with the Equal Protection Clause, or what's the deal here? You just need to think no, about no, that. No, no, I'm I was I was just just thinking. I mean, I, again, the the voting rights rationale would actually be uh, you would you would be supporting uh, minority rights uh, if you're using it for that. Um, and I'm not sure how exactly you you would be. Uh, disadvantaging minorities. Sure, by sure, putting the sure. You are. In. You you are because now you don't you don't believe this because you reject the opinion of the people who do uh, uh, who've done census stuff and have studied this for their entire careers and are experts. And that you know certainly that's your and they that's say your way. No, let me let me finish. That's your right. prerogative to okay. reject the opinion of of these of these experts. But it's it seems pretty clear the consensus of them is that adding this question will actually lead to a significant undercount of uh, of Hispanics. Now you don't have to believe that I, I will side with the people who do this for a living and have done it for in many case decades and you can you can side with whatever logic you feel you want to side with on this all right well i my 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 logic on the, again going to the merits of it uh is that look i think it's important for a country to know how many citizens it sure, has. but that doesn't have to happen right? on i mean and, and, I, and i think it's important for a country to know how that measure changes from from uh, decade to decade. Well, not only that, Jay, I'd agree with you. It's important to know how it changes even uh, uh, even in smaller increments than that. And that's why a citizenship question is regularly included on the American Community Survey, which the Census Department sure. puts out on a regular basis. And uh, that's that's you know that pretty accurate data actually. And uh, there are some. But, what, but you're not you're not worried about undercount for the uh, American Community Survey, but but you would have an undercount for the census. Well, I, I'm worried about I'm worried about an undercount just in general. You're, you're, you're saying no. I, I get what you're saying. You're saying because the census though is is used specifically for uh, districting, voting, exactly. uh, that sort of yeah. thing, whereas the other is more just a tool to gather demographic information. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's in, in very important to know a lot of these things, but I think we need to make sure that the census, which is designed to do one specific thing, does it as well as possible. And if we need additional instruments or things to do other things, hey, I'm I'm absolutely open to that, you know, but I just think we need to focus on what the primary purpose of the census is and make sure that it provides the most accurate enumeration of all the people in this country as it possibly can. Everything else is secondary to that. 
Okay, fair enough. Hey, and well, so one more uh, Supreme Court hit this week. Um, again, uh, involving administrative law. This was the case uh, Kaiser versus Wilkie. Uh, it involved a uh, Vietnam veteran who had applied for uh, benefits uh, from the VA uh, and had been turned down by bureaucrats who hate injured veterans. <laughs> um, uh, no, but actually, it, 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 it goes, the, the facts are sort of convoluted of he appealed and then what reasons can he give for uh, supporting his, his disability and, and the VA said, no, we don't, we don't accept those reasons. So it went up and and this turned on not necessarily well i guess it is it, it is deference uh the hour doctrine mm-hmm. uh that's a u e r not like the time uh, or r our yeah. doctrine as opposed our, to their doctrine yeah yeah um but uh, uh what what the hour doctrine says is that an administrative agency is going to be given deference when it uh is is determining the meaning of its own rules the rules it promulgates uh, and the, the reason behind this is, well, they're the they're the group that wrote them, right? Um, so they ought to have the best idea of what it means. Uh, secondarily, uh, the administrative agency is the uh, arguably the agency that I would have the most expertise uh, in regarding, you know, how how the rule operates in the real world. Uh, so it, w- it would be best to do that. Um, and again, uh, Roberts joined with the uh, the uh, more liberal justices here. Um, but again, he seems to be carving out his own, his own path a little bit, uh, in, in, in the one hand, he, he, uh, does not overrule our, but sort of sets up some parameters. And I think, uh, uh, he didn't write this opinion. The, the opinion was written by Justice Kagan, um, who noted that the, the our doctrine and deference is, uh, deference is, uh, potent in its place, but cabined in its scope. Yeah, I, I really nice, like yeah. that. Um, it's kind of you don't get you know judicial poetry as often as you you have to, but um, and and but so what what sort of we ended up with is yes the hour doctrine stands, but uh, again it's one of those picking your battles I think, and I think this was a case where uh, bad facts could have made bad law, um, uh, so it, it's it, the deference remains intact, but. The court sort of specified when that deference would apply, and it only comes in when there's ambiguity uh, in the statute, uh, and it only comes in uh, if the the interpretation first has to be reasonable also. Um, so any any thoughts on, on this, and I guess sort of just the larger arc of, of John Roberts' week here? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I first wanted to point out that we've talked about this issue before, but we've talked about it more commonly in terms of what's called Chevron deference. And just to be right. clear on the distinction for, for folks is that the our our deference is about granting agencies discretion in interpreting their own rules and regulations, rules. whereas Chevron is about granting agencies discretion in interpreting legislative mandates. So something exactly congressional congressional mandates aimed at that agency. Exactly, and so but they're but they're really kind of pretty close cousins. Yeah, certainly, but 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 yeah, I think there's an important distinction, and so um, you know another thing I found was interesting is that in our, which was decided in 1997, it was a unanimous decision. And actually, Justice Scalia wrote the opinion. And, and to me, it's interesting because it to me is maybe a signal or a sense of how far the court has moved to the right, at least on this issue, in the preceding two decades. You know, I mean, because Scalia certainly was no squishy liberal type, are the 
far the opposite, right, from that. And this was a unanimous decision from, you know, 20, what, 21, 22 years ago, yeah. essentially. And what I take away from this is I think the majority got it right, certainly. I mean, I think they constrained our, our deference a little more than I would have liked to have seen. But it seems to me that the court's foremost conservative members, at least in this area, are basically saying that, hey, we're fans of judicial activism if it allows us to kind of further a deregulatory agenda, basically. So I, I think I think I do not get the the dissenting conservative justice. I think that, that I know Gorsuch especially was just all in a tizzy about this, basically feeling that, you know, it was a failure of nerve on the part of Roberts and so forth. And I just think, wow, that's 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 like the epitome of conservative judicial activism right there. So I, I was happy with the decision. Again, I think it was a uh, I was disappointed with some of the decisions, the big decisions at the end of the term. But I think it was a great week for John Roberts, who, again, who even though I disagree with him on a lot of policy things. To me, he is he is almost certainly the the most kind of uh he he's an impressive chief justice. I think he's doing exactly the job that a chief justice is supposed to do and and you know, great job John Roberts. Yeah. Well, one one thing in response to your the judicial act. I I think the argument counter to that would be uh the 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 administrative state has grown considerably uh, since uh, our and since the you know uh, Scalia wrote wrote that opinion, um, and it's 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 almost sort of a a flip side of uh, um, the argument that uh, the uh, the liberals made in in uh, the uh, uh, gerrymandering. Uh, in that look, it's it's just you know yeah it's been a problem for a while, but it's a lot worse now. Um, that's a let me. I'm going to hit you with one other Supreme Court case, and I know it's not fair because this wasn't on a list of stuff we're going to talk about. But I, I just wanted to note it because it kind of fits in with this theme, and that was uh, Gundy versus U.S. Uh, there was a a five three vote, um, and, and uh, this time uh, Justice Alito uh, joined with the the more liberal members of the court. Uh, and this case turned on the uh, uh, delegation clause. And, and I, I raise this just because this is something you and I talk about a fair amount, and it kind of ties into this, this same idea. Um, the delegation clause is, is something that is, is not often talked about, but basically it says, you know, Congress can't just delegate its legislative powers to someone else. Uh, and again, it's, it's of, a, of a kind of, of this, this same sort of administration. In, in this case, um, uh, the uh, the uh, powers were delegated. It wasn't Congress; it was a, a state uh, court um, delegated the determination on whether someone had to register as a sex offender to uh, that's uh, a state's attorney general. Uh, and the court said, "Well, this is you know this isn't really uh, his his job uh, to do that. Uh, that has to be you know done by uh, by legislation." So Alito joined with the ma majority, uh, but said, "Look." I think we ought to take another look at this, you know, under a different case. And that's sort of, um, again, my sense that, that some of the conservatives on the court are, are playing the long game, right? They're, they're looking for the case that, that has the best facts. Uh, and, and I think that's good. I don't mean that that sounds sort of sinister, but, but as I, I said before, it's sort of a common saying that, uh, you know, bad facts make bad law. Um, uh, and I, I just thought that was that was interesting too. And again, Gorsuch was really because this is one of his pet peeves is this whole delegation uh, to administrative uh, no, agencies. Yeah. And I, I, so. I get the argument, and I think certainly in theory, I have a 
a fair amount of sympathy for that argument, as you and I, you and I have talked about, you know. But uh, and I think it's it's uh, undeniable that Congress has acted irresponsibly uh, in delegating away too much of its authority to the executive for, for a whole host of reasons. But I think what happens in practice here in the court saying this, well, we're not going to grant this deference is, is the, uh, the effect on the ground is that, well, we'll just figure it out ourselves. We nine unelected justices will just decide what what makes sense as opposed. And so to me, that's just that's not solving the problem. That's just that's just basically still a problem with Congress not, you know, acting as it should. Right. But I don't I would rather. Well, that's, that's why I added the Gundy case, because it's sort of it's sort of the right. There's 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 two pieces of this. The reason that there's an administrative issue is often because yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, courts aren't yeah. holding uh, feet to the fire on delegation. Yeah, no, and I, and I agree. I mean, I would like to, that that's something that I know uh, you and I have talked about in the past, and I, I'm hoping we'll have a much more extended conversation about that, or discussion about that in the future, because I think that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge issue, certainly, and, and I don't really necessarily see any easy solutions to it, but because it would require Congress to act in a way that's sort of uh, against the interests of many of the members of Congress, right? Um, so, but yeah, I, and I don't know that the judiciary is really in a position to force this issue, and this might actually come back to, well, is this, uh, in a sense, a political question or, you know, a justiciable type of issue. And I don't know that it necessarily necessarily is in trying to somehow judicially inject backbone in Congress or responsibility in Congress. I, I think that's a that's a broader question for our democracy. Yeah. Well, speaking of Congress, we had one other uh, congressional story to, to, to go with here, uh, and that was the uh, uh, border funding bill. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think we have time just to mention it briefly. Uh, this bill started in the um, uh, in the Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate, uh, but had significant Democrat backing there. Um, it would provide uh, four. Uh, I don't have them in front of me. Four some billion dollars for four point six billion dollars in emergency spending for the humanitarian crisis uh, at the border. Uh, this was a bipartisan thing where most people thought yes, because of, of, of just the conditions there that, that we've seen, particularly in the last week or so. Um, the House Democrats had had another piece that they wanted included in it that had to do with protection for migrant children. Um, and what happened was, uh, you know, when it when it went to the um, uh, it came back with with that from the House and then the, the Senate um, essentially, you know, just passed the. Uh, the, yeah, well, I mean, there there was a I'm I'm stumbling on my words. Well, no, it's, it's because I, I get. It. I mean, certainly, I, you you would want to highlight the dissension within the Democratic ranks, and of course, I mean, there were these course. certainly on the left flank of the party, and including Pelosi, who wanted to push through uh, a number of what I think are good and smart restrictions right. on how the administration could spend this money and then also uh, a provision that would allow uh, members of Congress to uh, visit these facilities unannounced. Now, And she got some pretty serious pushback from Democratic centrists, which is why they kind of had to abandon this because they're basically saying, hey, this is a serious crisis. We need to take care of right. this right away. We don't have, yeah, we don't have time for exactly. this. We can deal with and it And also later. I should yeah. point out that at least there was not supposedly, we don't have official word on this, but an in formal agreement uh, between uh, Pelosi between Schumer. well no between Pelosi and uh, uh, Vice President Pence said that they were going to try to 
administratively implement the 90-day limit on keeping children in those initial facilities and also an agreement to notify Congress within 24 hours after the death of a child in custody. And that's not as good as having it in law. But again, given the nature of this crisis, and many of us have seen that, you know, the, the, the horrible pictures and, and the, the, the conditions in the, the one facility in Texas and so forth, you know, something needed to be done. Pretty clearly, the system is completely overwhelmed. And I think for the most part, as I said on the Facebook group this week, that I think largely the people who are dealing with this in massive flow of, of immigrants coming in, they're just completely overwhelmed. And when you're that yeah. overwhelmed, even if you have the best intentions in the world, bad things happen, bad decisions get made, and we need to we need to put everything else to decide and do just what Congress did and get get that aid to these folks so we can take care of this awful humanitarian crisis. And so I think Congress did the right thing here. I I agree with you. I think that's exactly right. And I, and I think I think you make a good point uh in that you know our our system was set up largely to deal with uh single males, you know, who are crossing the border yeah. looking for work. Uh and and the the whole idea of of, of family and, and and again, not necessarily in mass. Uh and now with with the caravans with families, it's it's a different sort of, of problem. You need different facilities uh and and our our both the infrastructure and also I would say the, the legal infrastructure. Yeah. I mean yeah. the, the floor is settlement and so forth. Uh just we're not our, our uh as Lincoln might say, are, are inadequate to our time. Absolutely. Guess, oh, yeah. Right? yeah, absolutely. So, well, with, with that, we have no, uh, a bit of uh, bipartisan agreement. I think we can uh, take a take a break here, and then you and I will be back on the bonus show. Yeah, and uh, what, um, are we, what are we talking about this week, Jay? Oh, I think we're talking about Iran, and we're talking about the uh, G20. Oh, yeah, all kinds of stuff, summit. the G20. And whatever yeah, else, yeah, whatever, whatever else comes and up. So, obviously, if you're a supporter... That should be, if, if we're doing our job, should be in your app by the time you actually hear this. And if you want to hear it and get all the other stuff that you can get as a supporter, it's patreon.com slash politics guys. Also, Jay, I didn't tell you this. This is a surprise thing to almost everyone. Will and Kristen are hoping to do a special show just on the Democratic debates, sort of a kind of two, you know, Will and Kristen, both from the right center, kind of two right. from the right, discuss 20 from the left sort of thing. Um, right. If they're able to work out the logistics, I think they were talking about doing it uh, Sunday if they can. We're going to put that up on our Patreon site, but we're going to make it available to everyone, whether you're a Patreon supporter or not. Of course, if you get there and you decide you want to become a supporter, hey, it's just a click away. That'd be great. But but anyway, that's patreon.com slash politics, guys. I'll try to get it up by by Monday, certainly at, at the latest. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com is the best way. There's also our Facebook page. There was a, a amazing discussion on, of course, the Democratic debates and a lot of other stuff. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, that would be a big help. Please do so. And we love to get your comments. They're always uh, helpful and interesting. Some of them are actually kind of funny. This week, Jay, I, uh, we had a comment on CastBox. Someone said, uh, you are an embarrassment to Polish people everywhere. <laughs> I like Meaning you, of course, you know, not I don't me, know if right? he's talking about me or Brian Smentkowski, because now we have two Polish commentators, but whatever. So uh, on behalf of Pol Polish people everywhere, I acknowledge that comment and respectfully disagree. Anyway, the executive producers of the politics guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Will Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Jay Carson and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.